I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. When fighting breaks out, healthcare services are the most needed and the most vulnerable to attack. Doctors and nurses, ambulance drivers and paramedics, hospitals and health centers, and even the wounded and sick themselves are all in danger in the fog of war. Today I'm joined by two of my ICRC colleagues dedicated to understanding and preventing violence against healthcare. Maciek Polkowski, who heads the Healthcare in Danger initiative here at the ICRC headquarters and joining me here in the studio in Geneva, and Juliet Kalechi-Unubi, the ICRC Humanitarian Affairs Advisor on Healthcare in Danger at the Abuja delegation in Nigeria. Thank you both for joining me here today. Hello, everybody. Hello, Elizabeth. Very happy to be here. Pleasure to join this conversation. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, so I'd like to start off just by getting to know the two of you a little bit uh, for myself and also for the for our listeners of Humanity and War. Uh, so could you both just very briefly tell me how you became interested and involved in the Healthcare in Danger project with ICRC? And Juliet, could we start with you, please? Thanks, Lizzie. On joining the ICRC, I was tasked to manage several files on the protection of the civilian population files, and that included healthcare in danger. At the time, I was designated the foremost focal point, the file in the country, and uh, tasked to operationalize um, the file in the south part of Nigeria, uh, working within Portacourt office. What fascinated me at first was the goal of the HCID initiative, and this lies at the very origin of uh, the ICRC. I discovered that um, healthcare in danger concerns are complex in nature and requires multi-sector engagement to deal with them. And this is an area where I have had of experience. Ever since, I have remained excited about our engagements on the topic and the success we have together achieved with the local communities, and that continues to drive me to date. Thank you, Juliet. And Machek, if you could also just tell us how you became involved, because it has been several years. How did you get started? Yeah, it's true. It's been a while, and uh, I have been with the ICRC for a while, for an even even longer while. Um, I actually started as a linguist. My background is in South Asian uh, languages and cultures, and and this is why uh, at the beginning of my career with the Red Cross, I worked uh, predominantly in in South Asia. At and at one point, uh, you could perhaps say by accident, I, I started uh, working on protection of health among other topics. This has really uh, this was really an eye opener for me at that time in terms of what uh, this topic offers in terms of the ability to engage with a very broad range of uh, partners and also in terms of the kind of opportunities you get when you start combining the humanitarian approach with the public health approach and uh, in terms of partnership with with healthcare stakeholders. So uh, I haven't looked back uh, since then and it's been almost a decade for me on this topic. Excellent. Well, let's tap into that decade of experience now. And Juliet, please keep standing by because I really want to get back to you and dig deeper into your experience in Nigeria. But first, Machek, let's stay with you and dive a bit deeper and contextualize this global problem of violence against healthcare personnel, patients, and their families. 
And I think it's important to establish right away before we even start talking that the, the legal framework that we're talking about. So in, in times of armed conflict, international humanitarian law or IHL provides a very clear set of rules to protect access to health care, which bind both states and non-state armed groups. And one could even argue that the protection of medical care for the sick and wounded and medical personnel attempting to treat them is a foundational ethic of IHL. So with that background in mind, please do lay out this issue for us. Why do these violations of IHL take place and what context these take place? And what are the humanitarian consequences of the non-respect of this pillar of IHL? Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head. It could argue the cornerstone of, uh, of the Geneva Conventions and also uh, uh, the foundational issue for uh, for the whole Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, because at the beginning of it all, it was really about uh, providing life-saving care to those wounded and sick in the battlefield. And uh, what Henri Dignan had in mind was to create a universal symbol that would uh, protect the wounded and the sick, uh, first and foremost. And then what flows from there is also the, the protection uh, for those who provide the care. But that is not to say that this is some kind of a simple uh, uh, phenomenon that's, uh, that's easy to grasp and define. Uh, because more than one uh, phenomenon, I think uh, we have to do with an entire range, with an entire spectrum of, uh, of phenomena that are very diverse in their nature. And I think you're also right in saying that it is a global problem because violence against healthcare affects health systems all over the world across all kinds of levels of development, all kinds of legal contexts and, and so on and so forth. And it is globally a growing problem. For us as the ICRC, the portion that interests us the most is obviously the violence against healthcare uh, within conflict settings and also um, other situations uh, of violence, which in and of itself can take various shapes and forms and can range from uh, very much deliberate military attacks against medical personnel or healthcare facilities through movement restrictions of uh, healthcare teams or even those seeking care or entire populations when their access to preventive uh, programs is blocked. It uh, also pertains to armed entry into healthcare facilities, which uh, even though in and of itself, it's not, it's not illegal. It can be hugely disruptive uh, to the provision of healthcare. It also pertains to pillage, looting, and theft of uh, resources, uh, uh, which may be in short supply in times of conflict and, uh, and violence. Uh, but it also has to do with uh, all kinds of cruel and inhumane uh, and degrading treatment, including discrimination and stigmatization, be it on, of healthcare providers themselves, as we saw, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also of certain categories of uh, patients, be it due to sickness or due to their ethnic uh, belonging or personal uh, affiliation. So as you can see, uh, we're, we're not talking about a single thing. We're talking about an entire range of, of problems that, um, that we're trying to address here. And you're talking about literally life or death challenges. So with that in mind, let's let's actually start talking about solutions as well against that backdrop. I remember when I started with ICRC in 2010, there was a lot of buzz then about the need for this dedicated project on healthcare in danger. And here we are 
now 10 years after the establishment of it, and it's come so far, uh, and still, I'm sure, in your opinion as well, so far to go. Uh, so could you describe what the evolution of this initiative has looked like and what, in your opinion, have been the main challenges and achievements over the last 10 years of the project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in terms of uh, the history of this initiative, it is paradoxical to an extent, uh, I would say, because as we, as we just discussed at the, beginning of, uh, at the beginning of the conversation, this was the cornerstone of the entire Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. So in many ways, this is something we have worked on for more than a century and a half. Uh, however, as you also know very well, our work and and the work of of humanitarians, uh, broadly speaking, has really expanded in its scope in terms of the breadth of problems and and issues that we have uh, have been tackling. That also reflects the increasing complexity of of humanitarian problems uh, as such. So when a bit more than a decade ago, the Healthcare in Danger project was established, including through uh, the resolution at the 31st International Red Cross and Red Crescent Conference, it wasn't really about putting in place a new work stream. It wasn't about the ICRC and the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement venturing into a new area that, that, that we wanted to explore. I would argue it was more about going back to the roots uh, while at the same time reacting to uh, many thought was indeed a warring trend of uh, increased attacks, increasingly high-profile attacks, and uh, increasingly flagrant uh, disregard for the basic humanitarian principle and for the provision of this uh, this life-saving care. So more than 10 years later, uh, here we are, and I think we have made a lot of progress. Healthcare in Danger has been established as a strong movement brand. Uh, we have very broad partnerships. It's, uh, it's a very well-recognized policy and diplomacy topic as well. There's a growing group of uh, organizations and individuals that are working on this, including full-time. But I also completely agree with you that we have a long way to go. And uh, even though the normative language has been time and again reaffirmed, uh, even though the kind of uh, expert consultations and research that we have conducted over the last uh, decade is increasingly clear about what the solutions should be, despite all of that, we're still facing uh, challenges in terms of translating all of that into practice, into real concrete action on the ground. And we would definitely want to see much more action by states, first and foremost, including by ministries of health, who I think are primary stakeholders here. Thank you, Maciek. First, for really putting the the 10-year-old project into the broader context of the 150 years that is the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, and also, you know, outlining that that main uh, challenge of translating the theory into practice, which I think segues very nicely back to you, Juliet, uh, because you're certainly on the ground and based in Abuja. And so I'd love to turn back to you now and hear more about your experience from the operations in Nigeria. Now, I understand you're based in and calling us from Abuja, uh, but you've also worked in other parts of the country in addition to your current role, which has a national scope. What insights have you gained from this experience and how does the ICRC work in partnership with local communities? 
Yes, I have I've worked in the field, the very theater of um, violence against healthcare incidents, and up to the national levels where I cover a wide area. I would like to state that violence against healthcare is real and has serious humanitarian consequences. Now, um, working with different stakeholders, I found out that discussing and discovering solutions through different levels of engagement with populations affected and ensuring the involvement of decision makers is key to success. Now, because violence against healthcare has many causes and needs the commitment of stakeholders, the ICRC tries to identify key influencers and engages them um, through cross-sector partnerships. And for us, this is an enabler on the project. And so this, this helps us co-create practical homegrown solutions to particular situations. So for the ICRC, um, HCID is a major part of our advocacy side, but in, that is in terms of ensuring safe and timely access to healthcare. But we do complement this with our operational side, which is you know delivering support services to key areas. For instance, the provision of medical care, ad hoc medical materials, staff training, refurbishing of health facilities, especially in the northeast. Thank you, Juliet. You also mentioned earlier uh, the issue of gunshot wounds. Can you explain more how have victims of gunshot wounds been handled in the country in terms of being granted immediate access to medical care? And what work has been done by partners and the ICRC in this area, particularly in terms of legislation and implementation to change the situation? Thank you for that question. So it's important to state that gunshot, the gunshot wounded in Nigeria did struggle to receive prompt medical attention, uh, be it in private health facilities or governments. Um, they are often harassed and arrested by authorities, and some of the time they are rejected at medical facilities. Now, this is uh, this has led to um, medical complications, permanent disabilities, and needless deaths of the wounded. Now, uh, at a time in Nigeria, uh, being sh being shot meant um, was like you know being handed a death sentence. Um, so the person dies now or dies later, and this is all owing to uh, the legal misinterpretation and misapplication application of the Robbery and Firearms Act of 1984, which had in it several ambiguities. Now, um, the issue was that police and the medical personnel, you know, erroneously thought or have this view uh, that gunshot wounded needed to present a police report you know, prior to gaining access to healthcare. And the only way to gain a police report in Nigeria was to physically present at the police station. And this would often take, you know, several hours and bureaucratic processes. Now, this problem and its negative uh, humanitarian consequences, you know, were well known to members um, from the civil society. It was a topical issue within the health community in, and in the popular press. Now, various stakeholders requested that ICRC support in raising this issue at the federal level. And uh, we did, and the result was a written directive issued by the then Inspector General of Police, you know, requesting that um, police let the gunshot uh, wounded first receive, you know, life-saving medical services before demanding
within any form of uh, formalities, legal formalities, like you know, presenting a police report. And then this was followed by an announcement uh, by the federal government uh, in 2017, uh, which is the compulsory treatment and care for uh, victims of gunshots in Nigeria. And uh, here, the, this, this, this provision added another layer of you know, protection for the gunshot wounded, uh, which uh, ensures that healthcare personnel uh, you know, first offer services to the gunshot wounded and later deal with legal procedures and or launching an investigation um, to the matter. So additionally, uh, the ICRC has carried out an evaluative uh, study on this federal act, and um, it was conducted by the Association of resident daughters and as we speak and also very recently uh, this federal act has been domesticated by the states of Lagos and River State and what the ICRC intends to, to do is to continue to mobilize uh, efforts so that more states would create similar legislation. Uh, we believe that the situation is not changed, totally changed, but we have seen, you know, gradual, uh, you know, change of behavior, change of mindset from the members of the public and consigned actors. And this we will continue to, to, to leverage on our efforts on the ground. In the last five years since 2016, the same year the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2286 was adopted, the ICRC has documented 3,780 events affecting the delivery of healthcare across 33 countries, making an annual average of 756 incidents of violence against healthcare workers around the world. So as you mentioned, the ICRC has worked with partners to address this issue of violence against healthcare in Nigeria. Can you tell us what lessons can we take from this collaborative work when it comes to achieving results and being able to upscale solutions? So the ICRC in Nigeria works with partners first by you know, engaging uh, the Nigerian healthcare community. And it does this to reconfirm the problems they face and they continue to face falling into the broader HCID concerns. And this has led us to more deepened conversation with other stakeholders because uh, as we know it, that HCID concerns are of many causes and therefore one organization, uh, state, uh, institution is not able to solve this multiple problems. So to move on smoothly, would need, it would need cooperation of others. So in 2016, practically the ICRC, in collaboration with the River State Ministry of Health and the South of Nigeria, State sets up a multidisciplinary community of concerns comprising of uh, health practitioners from the public and private institutions, representatives from healthcare professionals association, regulatory bodies, members from the international non-governmental organization like the MSF and the academia to address issues of access to healthcare in the state. Now, uh, some of the issues that were raised by this community were uh, linked to the non-existence of the state-owned data mechanism and also the barriers to the treatment of gunshot wounds in the state and the, the kidnap of medical daughters. Um, then the ICRC realized that uh, you know, to have a far-reaching, lasting, nationwide impact, it would require 
require, you know, centrally drive the solutions. And this led us to the organization of two national roundtables to position um, the issue of violence against healthcare as a national concern. Um, the first was held in 2017, the second in 2021. And the last one, which was held in 2021, helped the Honorable Federal Honorable Minister of Health, um, personally, you know, chairing this 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 roundtable and leading conversations to understand the lingering challenges to the the safe delivery of healthcare in emergencies and uh, times of armed conflict. And to do this, so in this in this roundtables, we had. Of course, like I mentioned, we had people represented from different sectors, different government ministries, departments and agencies. And we also had the Nigerian Red Cross, um, a very important partner on this initiative. And we had a representative from the UN and other humanitarian organizations, ministries of justice, ministry of health and uh, the armed forces, including the police. And recommendations from those two national roundtable has, has been taken seriously by our partners and it's currently being implemented uh, across the country. Um, Machek, back to you. Based on what Juliet had as outlined and what you yourself also outlined, what is being done today to tackle these issues and what are the current challenges that we're looking at? Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy Juliet is here and that discussing Nigeria as a practical example because I think it's a very good example of uh, how, uh, as the ICRC, we want to frame this uh, this problem, the solution solutions we're proposing uh, for, for a variety of reasons. First of all, I think it's important to work on this at the policy level, at the national level. Uh, but then also to actively accompany the process of trickling down those uh, those policies uh, in order to be able to translate them into uh, into action and and everything that is being done in Nigeria in terms of uh, training the the police uh, in terms of uh, bringing this topic as part of the curriculum in medical schools uh, in the country is precisely what we want to happen uh, in other places as well but at the same time the, the, the moment we start making progress and the moment this is uh, recognized by the national authorities, that's when we have on our side a powerful uh, ally. And, uh, and that has been the case with uh, Nigeria, who uh, together with us uh, organized the continental African uh, meeting on protection of uh, healthcare this, uh, this past uh, July, which immediately resulted in very practical commitments and recommendations uh, in terms of what can, can be done at the level of, uh, of the African Union, uh, for instance. So I think this is the way to progress uh, on this issue. There's a lot done already at the global level. And, and I think those avenues have been, uh, have been exhausted to a large extent. So now it's time for practical hands-on work uh, and for regional um, rather than global uh, diplomacy. Another reason why, why Nigeria is, is an interesting uh, example is because of the role of partnerships uh, the, um, that, that Juliet has uh, just described. So yes, we're present on the ground and we yes, we still continue to do things ourselves, but because health systems are so vast, uh, and these problems are so vast, there's absolutely no way we can uh, address them uh, ourselves. Uh, uh, so obviously what the Nigerian Red Cross is doing in this regard is absolutely key, uh, but we would not be able to achieve all this progress without the, the partnership of uh, professional medical associations in Nigeria and the Ministry of, uh, of Health uh, in Abuja, obviously. 
Another reason why I think this is a good example is because we're not looking at this problem in Nigeria in a reductionist way. We're not talking just about overt kind of you know deliberate attacks against healthcare where a hospital is destroyed or a healthcare worker is killed. We're also talking about more systemic uh, issues. Uh, such as the the problem of access to to care for um, uh, people wounded uh, with uh, with firearms, and and this is once again uh, another very widespread uh, problem. So uh, so we want to move in a in a similar way in many other countries. And as a matter of fact, this is uh, actually happening. Uh, we have currently uh, f- at least fifty four delegations uh, around the world that are not only working on this topic actively, but that during the last three years uh, have achieved concrete progress um, in various areas, ranging from uh, obtaining commitments uh, from um, weapon bearers, uh, such as uh, was the case in uh, the Philippines or in Colombia. Uh, or delegations that have been able to instigate real legislative change uh, in countries where they work, in Brazil, in Pakistan. It's also delegations that have been able to integrate in the health systems of the countries where they work concrete solutions in terms of training, better preparedness, better physical security of uh, healthcare facilities. So uh, Iraq, Somalia uh, are countries that uh, come to mind uh, here. But but it's also generation of evidence-based uh, predominantly with local partners and through the kind of coalitions we we always try to build when we work on this topic. And uh, and here Bangladesh is, uh, is the most recent example with, where together with uh, the Center of Injury Prevention and Research, uh, we provided a countrywide study that uh, documents the extent of violence that uh, affects healthcare workers uh, in the country with some worrying results, unfortunately, to 80% healthcare workers in Bangladesh have either experienced or witnessed violence, uh, including 14% uh, of those who witness healthcare facilities being damaged in the while that violence was um, was happening. I think the problem remains widespread and it remains huge. Uh, we're still very far from uh, finding uh, perfect solutions, uh, but we shouldn't uh, lose sight of, of the fact that in many places where we worked, we've been able not only to achieve meaningful systemic change in terms of laws, preparedness, and so on and so forth, but that also in many places where, where this happens, we see uh, concrete, out, uh, concrete results uh, of that uh, in the sense of uh, healthcare w- workers being evacuated to their safety, uh, reduction in the numbers uh, of incidents uh, and uh, or better handling of, of incidents uh, uh, within healthcare facilities. So uh, I remain optimistic and, and also full of hope that we continue to be um, as committed to this problem uh, as we have been over the past decade uh, or 150 years. Really. Thank you, Mechek. I'll be certainly drawing upon that hope in the coming years as the project progresses. And thank you for connecting the dots there. Uh, Julia, do you have any reactions to anything that Mechek has said or any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Yes, I would like to uh, state that violence against healthcare concerns are real and affects everyone, be it uh, directly or indirectly. But the good news is that uh, they are all surmountable. Even though, as Masek mentioned, we are making progress with stakeholders, there is still so much work that uh, needs to go in. So 
From my side, I would like to state that why the ICRC takes the lead on this initiative in the short term. So our current strategies should be sustained for the full transfer of ownership to governments, health communities, weapon bearers, and the public in the medium to long term. In this way, we can uh, ensure sustainability of action. Thank you. Thank you, Juliet. And thanks to the both of you. Uh, I, I echo your appreciation, Maciek, for having both headquarters and uh, operational perspective here today. I think that was very valuable to really bring these issues to life. Uh, so thank you once again for your energy today and, and for sharing your thoughts and, of course, ultimately for the work that you actually do on this issue. I think it's been very valuable for our listeners, and I wish you all the best in the coming years for the Healthcare in Danger project to, con to continue. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. In the moment of worst despair, there is also a moment of hope because there are uh, nurses and doctors treating the patient. There is a perspective that amputees will be able to walk again in the future. And this is all due to the fact that there are hospitals which are safe, where people can be treated, where workers can work impartially uh, to treat all those who need treatment. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.